you know, I just think being a purveyor of delight is a really nice job description. So uh, I felt super lucky. And then that was kind of what got me into it was like the power it has to like really get kids engaged and connected and, and, and excited about being at school. And, and the thing that kept me as long as I was, was it also meant that I had this chance to build these transformative work experiences for largely young adults, like right out of college, who are coaches going into these schools and trainers. And that ability to make a difference in the lives of others is transformative. Welcome to another episode of the Wonder Podcast. This is your host, CCB, and today we're going to have a conversation, yes, with yet another amazing, amazing human being who, interestingly, is in our is in our general um, work environment, but with the tentacles into so many other areas. And so I'm going to welcome Jill Violet to the Wonder Podcast. Jill, we're so happy you joined us. It's great to be here. And I'm going to say... Like I always like to say, tell us how you got to where you are today. And there's so many levels of where you are today that you can tell us however you want to share that story. Yeah, sure. So I uh, I think how I got to be where I am today, I trace it back to being a kid growing up in Washington, D.C. And so I'm 58. And so I'm that generation of women who I got to play every day. I often was playing with the boys. And um, I had this experience of basically feeling most myself and most uh, comfortable and connected to others when I was outside playing. Um, and so I think pretty much you can trace uh, all of my um, uh, different entrepreneurial efforts, all the sort of different um, successes that I've had, like great, am amazing adventures that I've I've pursued to sort of an early awareness that, um, that that was the place that I felt most myself, most comfortable. And, and um, I brought to it a certain sense of empathy and belief that if that was true for me, it was probably resonant for others as well. Um, so interesting question there, when you bring up the empathy and how you, um, the way that you just described that, that was a very kind of insular, you <laughs> playing, yeah, but there's, it's Jill. And obviously there's Jill family and Jill school and Jill, you know, social and Jill. And um, in that, I sound like a Barbie doll that I have like all these different like Barbie, you know. Well, no, I'm describing that saying, <laughs> of course not. We, we can pull apart the parts and pieces and, you know, add the different layers if we want to. But more to the point of, you know, do, do you believe that that this was inherent, that this was an innate quality that you had? Or was there someone or something that helped you be more aware? Uh, I do think, I mean, I think most things are a mix of sort of inherent and, and environmental. So for sure, you know, growing up in the 70s in Washington, D.C., it was a time when you could play outside every day after school. And there was the local park and rec with this guy, Clarence, who was the rec coordinator who made sure I got in the game. And I did have classroom teachers who were like groovy environmentalists who were really excited about me learning about ecology and encouraged me to go backpacking. And 
Um, you know, so, and my parents who um, were just always like, you can do and be what you want to be, you know, like, uh, you know, it's pretty unconditionally supportive, thoroughly disinterested by any interest I had in sports. They were not humans who went outside, particularly themselves, but they were like, that's great for you. You go forth. <laughs> so um, I think all those factors contribute. I also think, in, you know, personally, I am something of an introvert. Um, I think I like other people. I get energy from being alone. I think, um, and I, and I, and then I think also there's just a truth that as a human mammal, um, we are intended to be outside some of the time and that it is actually good for our brains. And in, especially in this world where so much is coming at us all the time, um, that making sure that we have time to be outside and, and playing, right? Doing activities that have no apparent purpose, that um, those two things I think are how we're wired. I think that is the reason play has survived evolution is because we need it to sort of thrive and survive. Well, I, I also thought it was um, interesting on your blog post and for all of our listeners, we of course will leave, um, have information on the website of uh, Jill's contact information and her website, et cetera, et cetera. So you can dive much more deeply into some of this, which is amazing information and insights that Jill has to share. But your, your blog says, has this little quote that I, or not quote, but just a comment that I like, it said people need meaning, the opportunity for mastery and community to thrive. And I think that's a continuing theme through everything that you do. It is. And I, I should attribute it's it's in some ways a paraphrase of of Carl Jung. I didn't totally just come up with it all by myself. <laughs> so um yeah, no, I and I I think that has been something that I've both been like the you know beneficiary of myself, but also like in building organizations and managing humans and um, it, it's and teaching. You know, uh, I, I've seen it over and over again that when you give people this opportunity for meeting, mastery, and community, they're much more likely to thrive. And when you systematically um, remove it from their sort of work lives or other ways of connecting, you know, some of the stuff we saw in the pandemic, right? Then you really do set people up to fail and to, to languish. And, um, and and I think, so the, I, I would point directly, one of the projects I've been working on the last few years, um, I launched at, while I was a fellow at the at Stanford at the D School, so brought human-centered to design to this question of substitute teaching. And really, if you look at substitute teaching, it's a perfect example of uh, a dysfunctional legacy system where they have systematically sort of cut out opportunities for meeting mastery and community. And, and then we wonder why people like don't thrive in that environment. Oh my goodness. Literally when I saw that, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, um, I have a lot of educators in my family and the, the idea of um, developing a, a network and a system to support the tools to, uh, you know, and the process to shift the perspective on. I remember, I remember, what we all went to um, Catholic schools. So we had you know, either the nuns or when we had um, substitute teachers, it was like a treat. <laughs> we thought it was like, oh, yay, it's getting yeah. something new, new and interesting. And and I'm sure one of the reasons for that was it was just, it was introduced that way. Yeah. Not this is, you know, right. the bane of. 
No, it, it totally is such an environment, right, for a narrative shift, right? Like uh, we've seen districts that call them guest instructors. And there it doesn't have to be this this sort of narrative that we've created. I, I find it so fascinating, too, because the sort of popular story around how subs work and this sort of expectation that is set for kids that they will actually misbehave, that they will, in fact, be unkind to these humans, that that is weirdly celebrated in this way it's such a disservice to everybody involved not least of all the kids who are like somehow are getting this message that this is an okay way to treat someone who is a guest in your classroom it's it's very um I'm, I'm struck by how disempowering it is of students as drivers of their own education yeah you march right into that agency and where does that begin um, but I don't want to go there yet. What I do want okay. to say. Is, uh, okay. Don't okay. go there. Yeah. We can come back. We can go back to that. But no more. What I wanted to talk about was uh, to have you talk about was the idea of, you know, having your business card. And I don't think that it says this, but it might social entrepreneur. You know, how does that, how does, how does, how does the, um, the movement through, you know, your education process and then the, the paths that you chose to take. Um, help you understand or realize that that's what you are. Yeah. So it's, it's, I'm teaching a course right now on social entrepreneurship at UC Berkeley um, for undergrads through the Haas School of Business. So I've been thinking a lot about what it, what does it mean? Like it's, it's a pretty um, kind of catch all. It's, it's funny. And now it's, it's, it's sort of expanded to more broadly include social enterprise in a lot of ways. Um, And, you know, I'm, old enough that I was a pretty early class of Ashoka social entrepreneurs. Um, I think I was the second class in North America. Um, And Bill Drayton, actually the founder of Ashoka, who coined the term social entrepreneur, was my first speaker for my class. And so I remember sort of before times, but like before that was even a a phrase, um, I I think it's useful in some ways um, to to think of myself in that regard, because it gives me a context and um, a sense of like, oh yeah, I'm doing this thing. I like, I like starting businesses. I like starting businesses that have a measurable social return. I'm really particularly interested in, in creating organizations where um, the ultimate beneficiaries are key partners in the change making that it's not doing it for, but with that, that really ultimately the, the goals of the businesses I like to start and the organizations really is around systems change ultimately that is very driven by the communities uh, that that should own these systems, but not often. Um, I often also think that being a social entrepreneur creates a window into recognizing that um, a lot of the systems that we're trying to address, they're not broken in a lot of ways. In fact, they're they're operating exactly as they were designed to. Um, and like that, that, one of my other speakers was Alexander Bernadotte from Beyond 12. And she brought that up with my students. And it was wild to see the students mostly just accept that concept and like not see that as sort of provocative or, or strange, but then also wanting it not to be true. And, and so watching, so anyway, being at this nexus where I, I, I do identify as it, as such, I don't, um, I'm, I'm also, um, a little reticent about it in some ways, because I think there has been this sort of, just like we did with entrepreneurs more broadly back in the nineties and stuff, there is a sort of a glorification of it, sort of the, the, the faux rock star kind of, it makes me a little itchy. <laughs> I'm like, that's not right. Um, and I think it's important to be 
um, to, to look at anything with like a critical eye, right? And I think um, there's been a lot of good writing around ways in which social entrepreneurship um, contributes to maintaining the systems that it theoretically endeavors to address. And, and, and that feels worthy of like paying attention and, and, and questioning and, um, and keeping a sort of skeptical eye about how much are we, you know, if you have to sell your own hype, how much are you buying it? <laughs> Well, um, I often think um, of, of the folks that we talk to on the Wonder Podcast that there's such substance to what they have done and the um, the body of work that it speaks for itself. And whatever labels are that need to be attached, then the labels are attached. And we know what labels are, you know, for to in the positive and in the the um, helpful. And then we know what labels can do, you know, in the mm-hmm. negative and, um, and a disservice. But um, but what your name comes synonymous with in a huge way around the, um, the Bay area is playworks. Um, and so, and you've spent, you spent a really, you know, um, a lot of time and effort and contributed, you know, um, self to the, um, this astonishing work. And so I would love for you to spend some time talking about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I spent 25 years working on it. So, and, and I'm still, you know, deeply connected and, um, uh, it, it was, I mean, and, and I will say at the outset, no one benefited from it as much as I did. Like, I think founding an organization like that and getting to grow up with it is an extraordinary um, gift. And I just feel so um, lucky. It was also just um, felt like such a uh, privilege to get to spend a significant chunk of my adult working life um, addressing something that was just like really basically positive in an unqualified kind of way, like getting kids to play and like, you know, traveling all around the country and even doing some international work around it and getting to be the like human who shows up, whose job was to get like more kids doing rock, paper, scissors and running around gleefully outside um, playing. You know, I just think being a purveyor of delight is a really nice job description. So uh, I felt super lucky. And then that was kind of what got me into it was like the power it has to like really get kids engaged and connected and, and, and excited about being at school. And, um, and the thing that kept me as long as I was, was it also meant that I had this chance to build these transformative work experiences for largely young adults, like right out of college who are coaches going into these schools and trainers and, um, and, that ability to make a difference in the lives of others is transformative. And, um, you know, it, it, you know, doing it for 25 years, there are now people who started off as coaches with us who are the CEOs of different you know, nonprofits locally and nationally. And, um, you know, got to work with all sorts of amazing, brilliant people who are now doing amazing, brilliant things from being classroom teachers or principals to, to doing other kinds of leadership roles and foundations and, um, and other organizations. And, you know, being in business and um, be serving on boards and and to know that how they see the world and their commitment to you know really contributing to the to the social contract being upheld and okay um, that just feels super lucky. We we um, we had a brief conversation beforehand and the the I throughout the word trite as it relates to some, <laughs> um, well, I'm going to say, as it relates to some of the very simple concepts and the nature of 
Um, and you, you even just referenced it that, you know, um, the kids, I mean, people in the classroom are just like, things go over their head and they just, they look at it from a different perspective because they, because some of what has, what you and, you know, your colleagues have, um, have enacted has become part of our vernacular, you know, so that it, it, I love it when you see that and you're like, well, wait a minute, no, before that, it never, we didn't know that. But once we're after that, whatever that, you know, moment in time is, it's hard to pull people back and say, no, you you know, no, it just started here. Before that, they didn't, they didn't have an idea. Um, So the idea of, um, of something as simple as play and what it can do to make people, make young people um, think in a different way, uh, interact in a different way and and learn some values in a uh, in a very simple way is you know is beautiful <laughs> um, and I um, I'm going to do the little pitch for your TED Med talk where you got a bunch of docs um, to do, engage in that exercise so I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about how does how do those things happen sure 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 so I I mean so it's funny when you use the word trait. I've been I've spent 25 years of my adult life, you know, advocating for the power of play in a world where like it's much easier to be saying, no, they need to be much more rigorous academics and butts in seats and like there are all sorts of so I'm I've been swimming upstream like for a long time and um I've been called way worse things than trite. <laughs> like it's a, I didn't call you trite. Yeah, yeah, no, but like <laughs> no, I just yeah. but we I mean I think so you mentioned the dog study. The, um Kay Jameson wrote a really uh, should, uh PhD um professor at um, uh, Hopkins, I believe, uh, wrote this incredible book called Exuberance. And basically she talked about how as a culture, and I think it is sort of um, a, maybe an out, a, a sort of an outgrowth of our sort of Horatio Alger myth, whatever, but culturally in the United States, we have kind of an ambivalent feeling about people who are um, exuberant, who are playful, who bring kind of whimsy to bear in professional settings. It's it's kind of a love-hate thing. Like we've had leaders who are like those people, but we've also just always been like, like I'm not sure. Like being serious is sort of heralded as the hallmark of someone who is, you know, worthy of your investment. And and um, and it's it's a funny reaction because um there's so many reasons to believe that actually. Uh, you know, being playful is a really solid hallmark of emotional intelligence and, um, and is is an essential precursor to to trust and and building rapport and all these things that we know um, enable human collaboration to be much more effective. So all of that said, I think um, when you think about how, you know, you're going to, to bring play about, um, and and to really infuse it meaningfully into everything from school systems to workplaces, um, there is an, a need to like present things quite simply and directly. There also has to be a recognition that actually um, play is a fairly complex activity, right? And it it actually when we when we are open to like recognizing. Um, the profundity of it and its impact. Everything from people have done this through like animal studies, the one you referenced, I think Kate Jemison mentions it in that book, Exuberance, where they isolated wolf pups and didn't let them um, play together and gamble, I think is the phrase. And <laughs> they didn't, um, 
and then as adults, they were incapable of functioning as part of a pack, right? That the the lessons of play um, that when you are young really do spill over. I think you also look at activities that kids do when they are playing, particularly in less supervised groups, not necessarily unstructured. I suggest, I think there's always some structure even, but unsupervised groups of like the self-handicapping, like, right, uh, Jill, you and CCB switch sides to be on different teams to like, that that kind of activity, I mean, it's just so visibly lacking in our current civic discourse, you know, <laughs> like recognizing that you need the opposition, like actually conflict is not something that we always need to shy away from. It, it actually makes us stronger and better, but you have to engage in it with a level of just underlying respect and a, and a recognition that everyone has to be having a modicum of fun to keep it going because otherwise people are just going to leave and not participate anymore. And I think we see that in our, in our sort of, in our, in our commons right now. I think that is sort of, if you were going to do a broader sort of analysis about who's willing to participate and who's not in our democracy, there's a lot of sort of bad play behavior kind of coming to bear. Oh gosh. Yeah. Let's not go down that path right now. Um, well, can I push though? I do actually, yeah. I, I would want to pitch that we don't have to go all the way down there, but I actually do fundamentally believe in like, this is a way out there statement, but I actually think that making sure that kids get to play and have like in a very equitable way, access to, to free play, to, to, you know, structured play, to all the sort of different uh, forms of rough and tumble play, imaginative play, all of the different things that is actually an essential foundational precursor to us having a functioning democracy. That that is how you learn the skills that enable you to be a citizen. So I, 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 oh, I would, yeah, I thought we were going to try and go into, um, you know, into more political. I mean, I think the perspective, yes, uh, I take the perspective. Yes. To, to heart that um, the more, I mean, arguably the more education in any way uh, to all aspects, the exposure to the ability to, and learning how to do things, how yeah. to be. And I mean, when I say do things, it's how to, you know, be the, the good partner, how to be the, the friend, how to be the, how to be the leader, how to, you know, what are, when you have all those opportunities. Yeah. And how to be a follower. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I love, you know, all those, the, the metaphors for the, you know, the flocks of birds or the, the swim, you know, or the swim, the fish swimming and how there's, they're leaders and followers and it shifts yep. on a regular basis. And the more we understand that, um, yeah, the better served we are and not even understand that more to your um, kind of area of expertise, the more that we practice it, right. we develop the muscles. And we, I mean, you know, when you have that muscle memory, then that clicks in. Yeah. Yes. When you have the next opportunity. And so much of play like has evolved in that direction. Like, so I wrote a book during the pandemic and when I read, I, we ended up shrinking Playworks briefly when, uh -huh. when things went badly. And then we've, we've grown back, but we were trying just to sort of, it was a, an existential event for us in many ways. And in my period of being laid off, I wrote, I tried to like make sense of my own thoughts with this book, Why Play Works. And one of the things like when I was digging into it and I hadn't really fully grokked before I was writing the book, so much of how play has evolved um, reflects creating opportunities, developmental opportunities for kids more broadly to sort of um, address and get comfortable with everything from mitigating risks. Like, like hide and seek is a, a game that has like evolved because people, kids are worried about being abandoned. And like, in the, like we just in like, 
it wasn't an intentional set somebody set out upset about to you know to create this game to do this but we play out some of our fears and concerns you know climbing on jungle gyms climbing trees that's all an instinct to like learn to mitigate fears about heights and 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 there's such a great and i think it relates a lot to space and the and the and how we design our environments you know there's such a uh, pressure to create environments where we like eliminate risk but the, in fact what you really need to to have in order to learn to mitigate risk is exposure to them like it's it's this great sort of contradiction and and the great sort of it's almost ironic right that if you're going to yeah. get good at this you have to you have to engage with it well if you just think about the um Huh. I just think about the pendulum swinging back and yeah. forth and how we have watched. I mean, you know, you're in your 50s, I'm in my 60s, and we are looking at how many times have we seen this? Oh, coddle. Oh, no, expose. Oh, you know, can we can we understand and bring that to a place of balance and a place of um, and a place of continuity, I'm going to say, because all those shifts confuse people. I think it's I'm not convinced that there is like a right and a wrong. Like I think part of why we shift back and forth is like it's, it's always a balance, right? And the like polarities. Yeah. It, and, and, and like I have a blended family with five kids. Mm-hmm. Every one of my five kids has needed something different on the spectrum of like go for you know go break go outside and break your arm versus like oh come here baby like let's let's we you know like my kids intrinsic risk tolerance varies wildly, you know, and then there are other sort of two of them are girls and and three of them are boys. And like, so they, they, they navigated different worlds because of that. Right. Like, and so I just, I think it's interesting. Like I, I just, the other thing too, I guess, ultimately is like um, when you get into this world, there's like, people are like, it's this sort of unlikely thing about play because it's, there's a simpleness to it. And, and on some level we dismiss it, like, and don't take it that seriously. And then on the other hand, there are people who are like wildly nostalgic about it and feel passionately, like the mm-hmm. intensity of emotion. And they get like, they've been, we've, I've been called horrible names for like having rule. Oh yeah. I was a recessed fascist by one person. Like, I'm like, really? Like I've also been a vanguard of the Obama nanny state. I was like, how did that happen? So I, 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 I was like, huh. And like, I used to think, well, I'm pissing off the left and the right. I must be doing something right. But I, I think the the truth is that like it, it's there's not one right answer and um and so it it is it is based on a context and at every turn and it's also just happening in this world with so much else going on and people being afraid and um feeling disconnected and um and then they have their own experience which we then because we're human, we tend to generalize to everybody else. And so I think ultimately it comes, I started off the conversation talking about empathy, but we've really tried, especially we have young staff and we send them into schools and it's not uncommon at all for them to come back and saying, oh, the teachers are doing this or parents are doing this and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you know, it's hard being a teacher and it's hard being a parent. And like, and, and how do you infuse however it is that you are going about um, making the world a better place, mm-hmm. just so much more empathy and, and a willingness to suspend disbelief that these people are. So under- we're seeing that in a, you know, in the funniest, you know, parallel in the workplace now yeah, because sure. the people coming back, how do you get the people to come back and, and, and the rituals and the habits 
need to be changed. And, how, and you know, talk about change. Yeah. Um, how do you develop, a, you know, the trust again yeah. with, with your folks and, um, and folks, you know, within organizations with across, you know, uh, organ- silos and because silos have become so much more um, pronounced in the distance. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> They're gigundos. Yeah. So, um, so, so the, the, the truth in what you, you know, have been working on is a, is a universal truth and it's kind of a human truth, which is, you know, pretty, um, you know, impressive when you stop and think about it and really go, oh, move this one forward. So taking it into from the classroom, then into the undergraduate classroom yeah. <laughs> and, and having these conversations about um, how did you frame the course to expose people to as much as you wanted to expose them to yeah. in a semester? Well, so it's fun. So teaching social entrepreneurship has been one thing. I, I also taught a course, I co-taught um, with other folks at, at Stanford, the course on play and design. Um, and that was so fun to get to like, be at the D school and teach, you know, co-teaching and, and the, the team there is they're still teaching and they were teaching it before me. And, but like to be a part of that, it really informed though, how I thought about teaching the social entrepreneurship class. Um, and I think, um, so part of it is just comes back to the, you know, that people will remember what you, that people won't remember what you say and they won't remember what you do, but they'll remember how you made them feel. Um, and so I think there is a certain way that I've tried to approach teaching this course with like, okay, let's create a series of activities. There's their readings there. I'm bringing guest speakers. Um, I I create opportunities for people to function on a team. Um, I ask them to assess one another. Um, So I think I've been trying to um, sort of one, recognize that we all learn in a, a myriad of different ways. And so presenting information in a lot of different formats to get learners at every, every sort of, um, sort of mode that might, you know, hit them this way. Um, and then to be really uh, active and to to try and get things to be as both experiential and applied. Um, and then to ask them about how, how things make them feel. You know, I just think, um, and, to, mm-hmm. and to actually raise the possibility that this class you're taking as an undergraduate um, it, it would be okay if it made you feel a certain way. Like, and it doesn't have to always be positive. Like, um, you know, so I, I just think um, bringing to bear uh, some of the basic things about how we know people learn um, by through play um, and, and making it as uh, delightful as possible. I, I did, it was very funny though. That they've got an assignment due next week and um uh, when I was like, they were saying, well, how, you know, what's the, they, they, they're worried about their grades. And so oh. I try to be, I try to be kind and like give them information about like what the rubric is, how to be graded and then remind them that they're grading each other. And, um, but one of the sort of conditions, this one's a multimedia presentation on some aspect of the course or a social entrepreneur that they want to go deeper onto. And one of the criteria is that they um, use that media, whatever it is, if it's a, you know, they could do a podcast, they can do a, they can do a blog series, um, but that they use some aspect of the, of the media that like really amplifies the subject, that it really speaks to the nature of that media as well as the subject matter. And that it, it brings delight in the listener <laughs> to the listener. And they were looking at me like, like they were like delight. I'm like, yeah, people, I have, to I, know, I have to go through all these. You should be entertaining me. I try to be entertaining in class. You can, it's reciprocal. So, and I just, I don't know. I just, I think that's, 
like we learn more intrinsically. We are motivated to do things one that we choose and two that are delightful. And I, mm-hmm. I don't think, I think delight is something that we should pursue. <laughs> well, I think you've got, you know, the Horatio Alger, you know, reference earlier is that we're fighting that everywhere because people just, yeah. You know, are you supposed to be all buttoned up? And, and somebody told me that I was, and I read all this stuff. And so, you know, and the framework of, Education has been shifting, but it's not shifting quickly enough, you know, to be able to get people to that place. So we're coming at the end of our time. I'm just so amazed because it's such a fun conversation and it's absolutely delightful. But I want to first off say, um, you know, great appreciation and for the, your time and, and generosity. Um, and then if, is there any one thing that you've one thought that you'd like to leave with us that we haven't talked about that, though, I think you've pretty much covered I think that's kind of, yeah. No, I, um, well, I want to make sure, I don't know when you're airing this, but if um, my current passion is I've really, the sort of connection between play and democracy and sort of this adjacency to social entrepreneurs around democracy entrepreneurs, the sort of playful entrepreneurial energy um, that's been brought to entrepreneurial endeavors, social entrepreneurship. I think this is a moment when our democracy needs it desperately. And I think, um, it's not how we often think about it, but I think democracy is a space that we work in as well. Like democracy is part of the air we breathe. And I think um, we have a responsibility um, to really make sure that we tend to our democracy, that it is a it is a contact participatory sport. And so I just, I guess to all the listeners, if you've been thinking about what is the place where I want to make sure that I put my effort in, I would say um, care and the care and feeding of our democracy right now, I don't think there's a more worthy uh, beneficiary of your love. Excellent. Thank you very much, Jill Violet. We appreciate it. The um, Wonder Podcast is heard on all podcasting uh, sources, so you're going to hear it and listen to it and learn more about Jill Violet and all of her endeavors. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.